Good evening. Uh, my name is Simon Levin. Uh, I'd like to welcome you on the behalf of the Public uh, Lectures Committee to uh, this lecture in our continuing series. Tonight's lecture is the J. Edward Farnham Lecture. Uh, it was founded in 1939 by bequest of his brother, George L. Farnham, of the class of 1894, in memory of, his, of, Joseph, uh, of, of J. Edward Farnham, who was a member of the class of 1890, for the purpose of providing lectures from time to time by men of prominence not connected with the university. Um, which, uh, for which tonight's speaker qualifies. <laughs> uh, J. Edward Farnham was an explorer. Previous lecturers in this series have been distinguished as well. They've included John Gilgood, um, V.S. Pritchett, Isaiah Berlin, uh, and others. And uh, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce my colleague, uh, Peter Grant, a distinguished evolutionary biologist, who is going to introduce tonight's speaker. Peter. That applause is for you, Simon, not for me. Well, I'd like to introduce Simon Levin because he, nobody's introduced him. Um, oh, what a pity, I don't have the time for that. <laughs> He's great. Um, I'm going to start with a request. Uh, would all people in the audience stand up who do not like dinosaurs? <laughs> well, that's just what I thought. Simon uh, kept <laughs> seated. It's <laughs> uh, just what I thought. It proves my point that everybody loves dinosaurs and can't have enough information uh, about them. Jurassic Park was not enough, and we all wish to learn as much as we can about these fascinating organisms that once roamed the Earth and no longer do so. Uh, let's just take a, a little fantasy trip into the past and imagine that we... Uh, evolved is about 70 million years ago. Had that happened, uh, we would have had dinosaurs as pets. We would have had dinosaurs uh, swimming with us in the sea. And uh, we would be complaining to each other about dinosaurs eating the roses in our gardens. That's the fantasy world. Tonight, though, we're going to go into the real world. And our guide is the speaker, Michael Novacek. And I'm very uh, pleased and to have the honor and the privilege of introducing somebody who has made such a contribution already to the public understanding of what dinosaurs were in the past, how they functioned, and what in particular has been discovered as a result of the work done from the American Museum of Natural History. So Michael is Senior Vice President and Provost for Science at the American Museum. He received a PhD degree from the University of California at Berkeley a little more than 20 years ago, and in the intervening period has uh, uh, for a long time uh, conducted distinguished work, surprisingly not for that whole amount of time though, on dinosaurs, but on mammal evolution. I should say the evolution and extinction of mammals, because by looking backwards over time, he has tried to confront the problem of how mammals have diversified and why and how they have gone extinct in the past. So he's done many things in this area of mammal evolution, 
including uh, trying to help resolve the problem of fruit-eating bats. Now, that may not seem like a problem, bats are bats, but fruit-eating bats are very odd creatures in that they're big, they're furry, they're daytime flying creatures, unlike the standard bat, and they feed on fruit. And it's been speculated uh, by different uh, groups of scholars that they are true bats but have diverged from the true bat lineage of evolution on the one hand, and remarkably, from another group of scholars, the possibility has been raised that they're really primates uh, related to ourselves. And Michael has contributed to the resolution of this debate in uh, favor of them being bats, truly bats, and not just batty primates. So in the last decade, uh, he has, by virtue of his position and his interest, led a uh, set of research teams to the Gobi Desert of Mongolia, where spectacular discoveries of dinosaur remains were made in the 1920s. Um, he has already communicated uh, many of these results to the public in books, in uh, radio interviews, and appearance on uh, TV. And so we are very lucky to have as our guide tonight into the past as an introduction uh, to dinosaurs that lived many years ago, a person who has had first-hand experience, first experience of recovering the fossils and helping to recreate the lives of dinosaurs in the past. So it is with great pleasure then that I call Michael to the podium to take over and talk about and if only I'd remember the title, I could have told you, but it's going to be Dinosaurs at the Flaming Cliffs. Michael. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. I'm glad we're not all out recounting our votes. And we can take a little break from the dinosaurs. It reminds me a little bit of uh, a day, a very, another very tense day in the government where uh, the Goddard Space Institute asked me to come down and give a talk about the expedition uh, dinosaurs, and they said, it's the eve of the shuttle repair mission, and we'd just like to keep our minds completely off of that. Talk to us about dinosaurs from Mongolia. So let's take our minds off the world for a moment in the country and, and go to a, a marvelous place very far from here, far, far, in a, not in a galaxy far, far away, but a terrain far, far away with extraordinary wealth in terms of its fossils, its rich history, and what it's producing now. Dinosaurs, like other elements of the history of life, are powerful, powerful ways to which we look at the whole process or the patterns of evolution. But dinosaurs, unlike many kinds of scientific data, have another aspect to them that transcend their role in terms of their work or their interest for paleontologists. People, especially children, love them, as the survey showed. Some of these children grow up and become lawyers and politicians or other kinds of scientists, other kinds of professionals, or other walks of life, other, other um, make they're living in other ways. Some of these children, of course, don't change that much, like myself, and remain as paleontologists. And I think that the essence of paleontology is not only in the theory that um, 
seems so powerful, such a powerful way to describe the history of life and the application of that theory. But the reality that exploration is a possibility even at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, that that the the whole essence of many of the the challenges and surprises that were experienced by explorers in the last two centuries are some of the same experiences we still have. They're still possible to find really great fossils, what we call really good stuff or killer fossils, that indeed change our views and our perspectives on the way we look at history that went on 80 million years ago. And I'll have the first slide now. Of course, uh, dinosaurs are part of modern culture, and sometimes uh, one may make a judgment, positive or negative, of that impact. there were probably, if we did another survey here, there might be a, more of a mosaic reaction to this, to this figure. But it's true that despite all the hoopla about dinosaurs and their role in popular culture, they are fundamentally exciting. Dinosaurs and other fossils are fundamentally exciting as scientific discoveries. These are dinosaurs that were discovered a few years ago from the famous localities either late Jurassic or early Cretaceous localities in northern China, in Liaoning province. And as you may see in these exquisite little creatures, they have some very strange integumentary structures, surfaces, on these skeletons uh, or in these impressions in the rock, very, very beautifully preserved. And indeed, uh, the consensus is, by people, who experts who've worked on them, that these are feathers. Now, there's some of these dinosaurs from this locality that have unfortunately been a bit forged, but that should not detract from the specimens as we have seen and observed, many of us, that really show the marvelous, marvelous evidence of these structures, these very feather-like structures on the body of what is really what we call a theropod dinosaur, a carnivorous dinosaur, sort of the bipedal group um, in the Sariscian branch of the dinosauria that uh, really shows the the very strong evidence of linkage between one of the most successful vertebrate groups today, the birds and the dinosaurs. And the reason for these discoveries, of course, comes from the great exploration, the efforts of many people. And one of the most notable people in this whole history was Roy Chapman Andrews, the man standing here with his arm extending out over the magnificent sand dunes of Mongolia. And Andrews worked at the American Museum of Natural History, and he led a caravan of 100 camels and eight Dodge motor cars to the Gobi Desert in the early 1920s. The purpose of this expedition was actually to look for the evidence of early humans. The notion at that time was that humans may have actually emerged from Central Asia and spread throughout the world rather than from Africa, as the popular theory now holds. But at that time, it was thought this would be a a great opportunity to go into these very, very uh, poorly known regions, unexplored regions, looking for these kinds of fossils. The expedition did not exceed on that front. But in the course of their um, efforts, 
stumbled upon probably what is the most famous dinosaur site in the world, and this is Beinzach, or as better known, the Flaming Cliffs. This happened in the first day of September in 1922. Andrews was lost. That's something I can relate to since uh, we've been working in the expeditions in the last 11 years. It's easy to get lost in the Gobi Desert, even if you have GPS and maps and all that. He was out wandering on a plane uh, just north of some magnificent mountain range. He stopped at a garret to ask for directions from a number of militia who were stationed at one of these gares or these tents. And as he was uh, trying to orient himself, the expedition photographer got out of one of the vehicles and started strolling around on this flat plain. And this man, Shackelford, came up to essentially a point about right there, the rim of this cliff. You couldn't see it from the south. And as he walked north, he saw it drop off into this magnificent escarpment of red cliffs and spires. The whole team, he, he went down there and found a few pieces of bone. And the team followed after. And they worked for all about maybe three or four hours, just a bit of an afternoon. It was the last day of the season. They found a few pieces of bone, some parts of a small dinosaur called Protos, later on named Protoceratops, this beak-faced shield-headed dinosaur, and even perhaps bits and pieces of shards of an egg. But oddly enough, they pulled up stakes and escaped the Gobi. The weather was getting bad. It actually gets pretty cold as you get down, get into September. The weather was getting bad and uh, did not come back until 1923 and collected this locality extensively. And of course, it was during those expeditions that some of the most famous of all dinosaur discoveries were made. Not only many, many scores of these uh, shield-headed, beak-faced dinosaurs, protoceratops, but the first nests of dinosaurs, these, these eggs, which were logically thought to belong to protoceratops. This is an interesting story, and it relates to some of our efforts, because during the course of those expeditions, they also found this very odd-looking specimen. You notice the claws here, some ribs. There's a smashed-up face, both sides of it on other. You see it above there, the orbits around here. You see the neck vertebrae coming down and a bit of the hip bone or the pelvis down here. This is Oviraptor. It was actually found on a nest of eggs with a notion that this thing was a very rare animal. Over the last 70 years, only three of these uh, animals have been found at the Flaming Cliffs, with a notion that it was actually raiding this nest of dinosaur eggs that belonged to Protoceratops. Now, no embryos were known from any of these eggs. Hundreds of eggs were collected during those 1920s expeditions, but no embryos were found. The supposition that these eggs belonged to Protoceratops was just based on the abundance of protos and the abundance of eggs. And that supposition seemed to make a lot of sense, and it held for seven decades. Also among very important discoveries made uh, at the Flaming Cliffs and other localities in the Gobi were these small animals. This is the skull of a long-snouted, rat-like mammal 
called Zalamdelestes. That name refers to the strange teeth that the animal has. And this thing is no more than a few centimeters in length. It's a tiny animal. It's like if you found a mouse skull somewhere and picked it up uh, in your backyard, it would be roughly around that size. But despite its small size, many people thought these were the most dramatic of the scientific discoveries of the Andrews expedition. Why? Because these animals were so poorly known, that is, the ancestors of our ancestors, our predecessors, our group, the mammals, these animals were so poorly known from rocks that were that old at that time, rocks old enough to also preserve dinosaurs, rocks that might be more than 60 million years old, 65 million years old, the time that marks dinosaur extinction. So that was part of the story here and part of the whole um, range of great discoveries made by the Andrews expeditions in the 1920s. Andrews worked for nearly a decade in Mongolia and China and then had a few of those usual political problems, gave up in frustration and never came back. He actually hoped to return to Mongolia uh, a few years thereafter in the 30s, but it never came to reality. And of course, as you know, the great sweeping political changes in that area of the world essentially sealed out expeditions for Western uh, countries for more than six decades. But there was a lot of important work going on in Mongolia um, during this interlude including the work of this team, the Mongolian-Polish uh, expeditions of the late 60s and early 70s, led by Zofia Kielan-Yavaraska, who continues to work as a very influential Pola, uh, a paleontologist out of the Institute at Warsaw. And Zofia led a series of expeditions with many great discoveries. Perhaps the most famous and most fantastic was this rather not very large uh, couple of specimens. This is a sweeping tail of a velociraptor. As you may or may not know, in the movies like Jurassic Park, the, the velociraptors are a bit too big. Uh, they're a bit smaller. They're more greyhound size or a bit larger than greyhounds. And they're not, they, they don't attain the sizes portrayed in the films. But they are nonetheless nasty and evocative looking creatures. And this specimen is particularly interesting because it's interlocked with one of these beak-faced, shield-headed dinosaurs called Protoceratops. The claw of this velociraptor is up under the neck of the proto. You can't really see it that well here. The proto looks like it's bent down, kind of just smashing its head into the neck region of the velociraptor. Dinosaurs in combat. Those dinosaurs are, by the way, on display at the American Museum right now, so you can see them. For limited time only, we got some reprieve. We were supposed to return them October 31st, but we got some mysterious message, as I usually get from Mongolia. said, don't return them just yet. You can keep them for a while. So if, there's a, still a chance to see these marvelous specimens, and indeed many of the other specimens that I'm going to show you tonight. They're on display in our, our exhibit called The Fighting Dinosaurs. Other specimens, some really wonderful material has been collected by Mongolian scientists and Russian scientists for many years. And those are on display in the State Museum of Mongolia near Sukhbatar Square. Sukhbatar means red hero. and was the great hero of the, of the uh, revolution there. 
And this has now changed to the Natural History Museum. It's a rather um, undistinguished-looking building. And, but it has some marvelous specimens. This is Tarbosaurus. It's about as big as Sioux, maybe a little smaller, and other Tyrannosaurus, including the ones in our museum, but very closely related to Tyrannosaurus. It's the Asian version, an Asian cousin of Tyrannosaurus. And Tarbosaurus is one of the more flamboyant creatures of the Mongolian Gobi Desert. Well, this work proceeded, and as I said, we were isolated for many decades. Of course, paleontologists from the West wanted to get back there, but it was virtually impossible. Then the Soviet empire crumbled in the late 80s, at the end of the 80s. In 1990, Mongolia declared its democracy, and um, it, the same month, January of 1990, a delegation came to New York and invited us to continue our work to, as they said, to resume the work you started in the 1920s with us. And I thought that was a rather nice invitation. They said, so when can you come? Will it be possible to get some money and organize your expedition? And I said, we'll be right there, don't worry. <laughs> this uh, is a monument, a Soviet mon monument. You can see the sprawl of Ulaanbaatar down below. Ulaanbaatar is the capital city of Mongolia. And this is one of the Soviet war monuments. There are now, of course, uh, the, the usual changes, traumatic changes in that part of the world, coke billboards and other things all around this. But uh, this, is, this is of a former era, and of course the gateways are open for international research once again in Mongolia. So we initiated a series of expeditions. As I said, we just completed our 11th season there, and I must confess that after five seasons, I was still really stoked on Mongolia, and every, uh, much of it seemed fresh and new. I've become rather familiar with it, and I wouldn't mind a summer in Hawaii one of these years, just a little break, but it's hard to walk away from these magnificent uh, badlands and their fossils. You just, it would drive me crazy wondering what I didn't find that summer if I missed one of those summers. So we continue to work there in a series of expeditions uh, using vehicles from Russian trucks, as shown here, as well as other alien vehicles. And uh, now we have a fairly complex program. I even bought some land in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar where we have a workshop and we store 12 of our vehicles. And we probably have one of the best mechanic shops in town. So we have a little cottage industry going there on the off season. This shows some various roots of the expedition. It looks like a strudel here, so I won't go through it. But one of the important points to emphasize is that Andrew's area of exploration is mainly circumscribed by these black dashed lines in the northern and eastern part of this region. The Gobi occupies this vast expanse of half a million square miles. That's about five Wyomings. Um, and a huge, huge area. The Flaming Cliffs lies up in the northern edge of this desert, but the areas of greatest interest to us lie some three to 400 miles south and southwest of the areas where Andrews explored. And these were, first, these were localities first found by the Russians in the 1940s and worked by the Poles and others 
And so they're magnificent sets of badlands where we've really uh, spent most of our time. Mongolia is a fascinating place. I know some of you have been here because they've traveled me with me there, uh, or they've traveled with me on various trips, and it's a delight to see you tonight. But it's a fantastic place. I mean, this country has only 2.5 million people. It's one of the least populated countries in the world. But it has over 25 million domestic animals, goats, camels, and sheep. Uh, there was some unfortunate problems with drought in this year, and there was a large decimation of some of the domestic stock, but there still is plenty of available food. This is a land of meat eaters, as a New York Times review of culinary non-treats from Mongolia claimed, there's no word in Mongolian for cholesterol. And they'll eat every part of the animal. Um, it's a wonderful land of traditions. Perhaps the greatest attraction in Mongolia is not really um, the dinosaurs but the annual event, Naram, which are the traditional events to celebrate the growing season in, in the middle of the summer, where the Mongolians show their extraordinary, extraordinary skills in wrestling, archery, and horsemanship. And as you see here, our, uh, this is a family of wrestlers that came into our camp one day and actually gave us a sort of spontaneous demonstration of their skills. I like the combination here. I don't know whether that's Savoy Street and whatever. At, at any rate, um, it's, a, it's a delightful series of traditions, and that attracts a very large uh, crowd of, of tourists in the summertime in the capital city and other regions of the country. Andrews, this is a picture from the Andrews expedition in the 1920s. Andrews talked and wrote quite a bit about one of the biggest and ironically worst problems the expedition faced in these summer expeditions, and that is rain. The Gobi is a desert. It's virtually devoid of rain most of the year. But July, which is the best month to collect bones in the Gobi, is also the rainy season. And so especially on your escape from the desert, this is the worst part of the field season for us, especially your escape from the desert, you have to deal with the mud and the rain. And Andrews had those problems, and so did we. This is one of our, we have to carry all of our gas, gasoline with us, because the infrastructure of the country is so poor in providing gas. So we carry about a, a few tons of 98-octane and 76-octane gasoline in a tanker and a trailer towed behind it. This year, 1996, we got stuck in a clay pit, and it took three days to get this tanker out. We had to scour the countrysides for some big trucks, and it was not a practice. Getting this thing out was not a safety-recommended practice. We had to wrap, finally had to wrap a big metal cable about the girth of an anaconda around the tank itself, yank it sideways, get underneath, fill the pit with rocks, and then set it down again, slam it down again, and pull it from the front, from the, the, direct, from the front direction. It was a very scary and a sort of critical operation. We were in bad straits. It's very interesting about Mongolia and the shortage of gasoline as well because the, um, this is a gas culture, basically. One year we were camped 
and some young Mongolians came up on their motorcycles and wanted to trade sheep for gas. And so he stopped by the side of the road, and the young man said, well, would you give me one of these Sierra cups? And I gave him one, and he poured a little gas into the cup and drank it, and then said, Danzarad. Danzarad meets 76. These guys can tell octane by taste. Another uh, serious aspect of work in the Gobi are the sandstorms, and uh, Andrews did talk quite a bit about the wrote, wrote quite a bit about the sandstorms in his memoirs, and indeed they can be. I don't know if they're as life-threatening as he describes them, but they can be awfully annoying. So annoying that we've actually shifted our field season back a bit because we tend to get the worst sandstorms in the early summer, and the frequency induced us to move back to July, more into July and August. They can make for magnificent uh, skies, as you can see here. There's a faint outline of a truck down here in the slide. So here we have our expedition. In the early 90s, this was more like uh, a launch to the moon. There was basically no infrastructure, no supplies, no food, no gasoline, no route finding in this vast, vast area. Things have improved a little bit. There's more food in the country, there's more commerce, and there's actually even a little gasoline this year. But there are very important decisions that have to be made. This year we had about, uh, the, the year this picture was taken, we had about 35 people and 12 vehicles. We have to worry, we carry our water, just these prosaic things I never thought I'd have to worry about so much, but we carry all our water uh, a couple thousand liters in these nice plastic two uh, barrels here. And the nearest good water is 80 miles away, so we have to be very careful about rationing water. Uh, it's not uh, an ultra bath clean camp, as you might imagine. There are certain priorities. And uh, I have to tell you, some parents who've seen the National Geographic film write and complain to me because when their kids are playing us, after seeing the video, they said, well, uh, my colleague, its name is Mark Norell, and they say, okay, Jimmy, now it's time for your bath. And they say, Mike and Mark don't take a bath. <laughs> we don't need one. <laughs> uh, exploration of the Gobi is interesting in terms of st strategy. We're interested in a certain kind of rock, a rock type that preserves uh, the bones that are of such importance to some of the questions we're asking. And these are preserved in little islands, basically, little canyons or areas of, of, of exposure that are well separated sometimes by hundreds of miles. And so a lot of what we do is using, when we can, satellite navigation and GPS, doing a lot of driving, cruising around in these areas, looking for these likely-looking outcrops. So as you can see here, these little dots represent those isolated spots separated by many, many miles. And things can be very deceptive. This is a site that we passed three years in a row. We just drove down through the middle of the valley, down in here, just drove right by it. and said, well, those are the best outcrops in this whole area. That's nothing. To the west are these magnificent canyon lands at least things that look 10 times better than flaming cliffs. So we just don't have time to stop there. One year in 93, out of desperation, we decided, well, we hadn't been finding much at all. 
we decided, well, let's just check these out. Our gas tanker got stuck right about here. We were just going to stop at one or two of these outcrops and then go back to the main road and head out west. And I said, well, let's camp here, and in the morning we'll come out to these outcrops here and look around. And uh, we went out there in the morning, drove our Jeeps up, and got out of the Jeeps, and we noticed that there were all these white splotches all over the hills. And we thought, what was that? Some kind of strange, is it gypsum or some quartz weathering out? They were all dinosaur skeletons. Indeed, with a, a few feet of the cars were complete uh, and beautiful specimens just outside the Jeep. And, and we proceeded to collect in a morning more dinosaurs, mammals, and lizards than had been found in the entire previous 60 years in the Gobi. In four hours, we had found basically more specimens, more better preserved material, and more diversity than those cumulative years. Uh, I thought it was a joke that maybe somebody had seeded the locality with casts, and I was just very hard at recognizing authentic, distinguishing authentic bone from cast. It was a crazy, strange experience, though, to to discover a site that's so rich and so small. This is a satellite image of the escarpment. This is only about three or four kilometers in length. This is the main escarpment of this locality. We call it Ukatogad. It's not a very nice name, but that's the traditional name for this region. Ukatogad just means brown hills. It's basically the local name for how undistinguished the area is. But that area is fabulously, fabulously wealthy. It is probably certainly the richest site from the dinosaur age in the Gobi. And perhaps in terms of the cumulative amount of specimens, the diversity of animals, and the quality, the exquisite nature of the skeletons, the richest site from the age of the dinosaurs in the world. And there are specimens like this by the hundreds. This is a uh, protoceratops. You can see the part that was sticking out of the ground is just weathered there, and here are the cheeks and the back of the shield. One of the most important parts of the Ukatogad fauna are these velociraptor-like creatures. There's a whole range of these things, actually. Your dromaeosaurs are related to velociraptors, these meat-eating bipedal dinosaurs reconstructed here. Some beautiful new material. This is a new animal that was just recently published a couple of months ago called Byron Jaffia. I found this in 94, and you can see the skull here with these teeth. This is a member of a group called the Troodonts. It's related to Velociraptor, and many people feel that it's not only one of the most bird-like of the dinosaurs, but it's also one of the smartest of the dinosaurs. It has a relatively large brain case. Much of that brain case was broken off in this specimen, but we have most of it in pieces associated with the rest of the skull. And you can see the snout and the nostrils up here and these fine, fine teeth. But the oddest, perhaps, the oddest and most dramatic dinosaur preserved at Ukatogat is this thing. This is Oviraptor, this animal with this fairly large forelimbs and these long claws, these long feet, and this crazy skull with this beak-like thing with teeth on the palate and possibly a big crust. Well, actually, it's preserved in some of the skulls, a crest on the skull. And 
unlike, we knew this the first day, something was really crazy. Up to that time, only two or three of these oviraptors had been discovered from any goby sites. They were among the rarest of the dinosaurs. We found 20, 25. We were wondering, what's going on here? Mark walked around a corner of a hill and came back and said, well, I just found the fossil for my life. I can retire now. And he came upon a nest, what we call, would call a protoceratops nest, and inside that nest, is that a little fuzzy here? I'll do my best. Uh, inside that nest were actually, for the first time, out of the hundreds of eggs that had been collected in the Gobi, the first time, some bones. And these were bones of a small embryonic dinosaur. We thought at first it was this fellow here. This was actually found in the nest, too. And it's a small velociraptor-like form. And you can see little pieces of the eggs against the jaws and the teeth of this animal. So we naturally thought there's some association here. To our surprise, several months later, we found that this thing, once it was prepared back in the labs in New York, was actually an oviraptor. Very surprising. And the oviraptor skull, you can't see here, is faintly outlined, but here are lots of the bones and teeth, and they're very well identifiable. Um, once you've, you, you, you're an oviraptor expert and you, you've learned those bones. This, on the other hand, is a velociraptor or a little velociraptor-like creature. What is it doing in the nest? Maybe they were raiding the nest. Maybe they were being fed. Uh, we, who knows? Here's a reconstruction from the National Geographic article showing a mama or papa oviraptor feeding this, this, in this guy to his young. And, of course, an evocative reconstruction of this animal in the egg which, not to give you too much nostalgia about elections, had inspired a number of, of other reconstructions. This one was from the Los Angeles Times. That very same week that we discovered the locality, we found this very curious creature, and it's another oviraptor. You can see the arms sort of spread out in kind of a cradling fashion. And as we started to excavate this, we started to see these purplish oval things. These are the eggs. There are about 20 of these eggs in three tiers, set in a very strong architectural design with this animal wrapped around. Now, the arms of this oviraptor sort of around the eggs like this. The legs are flexed back. You can see the front feet and the toes here squatting on the nest. Natural to suggest that this thing was nesting on its eggs. Indeed, now we have about half a dozen. We've found nearly 100 of these oviraptor skeletons at the site, maybe more, 150 or so. But we have at least half a dozen of these nesters uh, on these eggs. And a reconstruction shows something what we believe this animal's pose was, very reminiscent of their modern relatives. And so we have a very interesting situation where many of the things that were thought to be protoceratops actually belong to these oviraptor dinosaurs in this extraordinary diversity at that locality. Of course, the mammals shouldn't be forgotten. This site is so extraordinarily rich with mammals, it defies, it's ridiculous in comparison to other places. Most of the literature, scientific literature, about mammals that lived during the time of the dinosaurs are based on what we call spare parts, parts of teeth and jaws. 
Most of that scientific literature based on specimens that come from North America. And from the time of the dinosaurs, from rocks that old, there's virtually not one skull or skeleton, complete skeleton, of a mammal that comes from those rocks in North America. We now have 700 skulls, and, and many of these with skeletons of mammals from this single site. And they break down into very important groups, an archaic group that actually function a bit like rodents. They have long teeth, and they probably ate seeds, long incisors. But they went extinct some 50 million years ago. And also two groups that respectively foreshadowed our group, the placental mammals, which includes the primates and those fruit bats that we just heard about and everything else, um, and elephants and whales and so forth, and the marsupials, the pouched animals from Australia and South America and other parts of the world, but dominant in South America and Australia today. And these are very interesting forms. Here's some multi-tuberculates. We have nice skulls and skeletons of these animals. Note these long chisel-like teeth. Very small forms, exquisitely preserved. This is our marsupial-like form, and really the first branch leading to what we think is the marsupial group, suggesting that marsupials, despite their dominance in South America and Australia, may have actually come from Central Asia originally. And, of course, the placentals, again exquisitely preserved. This is uh, a new form called Eucotherium, you can see. And it's a very tiny animal, by true size, beautifully preserved. Uh, this is an interesting thing. This is not a photograph. It's a CAT-scanned image that's computer-animated. We take... We use a CAT scan to make about 1,200 sections on a skull, which is about an, an inch and a half or so long. And then we can do an animation and remove tissue and look and try to reconstruct the nerve net and the blood vessels and so forth. It's a very effective technique that we're using on many of the specimens now. Uh, this is a very interesting aspect of these animals. These animals have what we call epipubic bones. They're struts that extend from the base of the pelvic region that actually stabilize the abdominal area. There's some ambiguity about what we, these mean, but we know that these are ancient features in mammals that are lost in more modern forms like us. And the general sense is either these struts function perhaps to suspend a pouch, or they may have just, if, because many marsupials don't have pouches, they may have functioned to reinforce the abdominal region as the young are born, of course, uh, at such an immature stage in marsupials, and then they develop outside the animal, that there is perhaps some advantage for stabilizing that area. Placentals, of course, on the other hand, have prolonged pregnancy. The development occurs inside the mother, so it would make sense to have not have so much rigidity in this area. And as you can see, this opossum is somewhat uncomfortable supporting its young in this picture. So there's a marvelous range of fossils from Ukatogat and other Gobi sites. And here are just a few of these from the mammals and Velociraptor, Oviraptor, this beautiful skull here. This one is on display at the um, Museum of Natural History. You can see by scale how small some of these mammals are. This is Upatherium. A marvelous range of these different animals and a great diversity and huge abundance. We've stacked up these localities in the sequence where they occur in the rock record. 
And these all seem to be many catastrophes. They wasn't all one big catastrophe. These animals were somehow killed and buried over a very short period of time at different levels, at different times throughout this, this section represented by um, the site. How many millions of years, we don't know, but uh, we know that they were separate events. And so these represent these localities, these math mass uh, death sites that are of great interest to us. We thought, following some of the early theories, that these animals were probably buried in moving sand or sandstorms. They, they are found among ancient dune fields. So the notion was that maybe, you know, these big sandstorms came in there and wiped them out. But no one really had a clear explanation. We brought in Mr. Sandman, the world's expert on sand. He's the chairman of the Department of Geology at the University of Nebraska. And he started more carefully looking at these things. And he saw things we didn't see. For example, you see these beautiful cross beds in this section. This indicates migrating dunes. And we told him we had never found trackways in the Gobi. Although many places have dinosaur trackways, we've never seen any of these. He said, well, there's one way to do this. And he started cutting into these cross beds because he said, these are just surfaces of old dunes. And after a couple of hours, he cut into one of these shelves and got a series of what must be Protoceratops tracks, the first tracks, dinosaur tracks known from these Gobi sites, just because of his analytical interests in sands and sand dunes. And uh, probably these animals were very abundant walking on a lot of these sand surfaces. He could see them in cross-section. And so he just simply dug into the areas where he saw these in cross-section. <coughs> this man, Dave Luke, pointed out that the fossils themselves were preserved not in these moving sand dunes, but in the more stabilized one, where there was probably some vegetation. And, the, and he also noticed that there were small clasts around a lot of the skeletons. So he suggested that these animals may have been buried very rapidly in mud flows or in rainstorms where these dunes actually collapsed in on the animals. And these animals were sort of concentrated in nesting sites near small bodies of water amongst these giant dune fields, within these dune fields, uh, under these dunes that may have collapsed in on them. We don't know the answer, but certainly more of the geologic evidence points in that direction. <coughs> Excuse me. What about the small animals? Well, perhaps the mammals and the lizards and everything else found in great abundance may have been in burrows, and these were buried instantaneously. It is interesting, when you look at the fossils from this side, that unlike many fossil sites, they show very little evidence of two things. One is transport after or around the time of death. When you get a lot of moving water, things tend to be moved and broken up and moved down. The other is scavenging. Most fossils like this show lots of nicks and marks and breakage points because other animals, just like a carcass, uh, those feeding on a carcass in the Serengeti because other animals have fed on them for a while. There's no evidence of this whatsoever in these, these fossils at Ukatogod, at Flaming Cliffs, and other places where they're so exquisitely preserved. So whatever killed them, we may not know precisely, but they were buried extremely rapidly. Uh, what about the situation itself? This is a very odd case because most dinosaur sites in the fossil record are 
wet. They're, they represent uh, forest areas, floodplains, lots of trees, and there's a lot of water. This was a desert, as best we can, um, as best we can ascertain. This is one of the few desert or very arid sites that we know of for dinosaur localities through millions of years of that record. So one question is, well, how could these animals be supported in such a, in such a habitat? Uh, it seems likely that there was water there, it was ephemeral, came certain times of year, and we know there are situations today, such as in Africa, that support a lot of biomass in a, in a situation that's quite arid. It might be highly seasonal, but a lot of biomass is supported. Here's some elephants frolicking in these very arid areas here in Western Africa, in Namibia. In and around the dunes, you could imagine dinosaurs moving around in a situation like that as well. Uh, these were, I should distinguish, catastrophes that are very helpful for us in terms of trying to get a very detailed picture of what the Cretaceous was like 80 million years ago. But they are not catastrophes that are the same as the Great Extinction Event at 65 million years ago. This, these events apparently occurred, we think, somewhere around 80 million years ago. And so there are a series of, of many catastrophes that impacted on the communities of animals and plants and other organisms that lived in these places. Of course, everybody wants to know something about dinosaur extinction. And the general wisdom now is that there was some humongous and horrible event that occurred 65 million years ago somewhere, well, we know fairly precisely, next to Mexico in the Caribbean, and this asteroid struck the Earth and probably had some great impact on the extinction of life, the, the, the great extinction event 65 million years ago that affected dinosaurs and many other creatures. But there are still some interesting mysteries that, and, and some limitations of the evidence. This is something I think a lot of people may overlook um, when they're thinking about dinosaur extinction. These are sites arrayed around the world. Every one of these red dots contains dinosaurs. They're dinosaur or other vertebrate sites. And they're from the late Cretaceous. They're, say, 80 to 100 million years ago around the world. So you can see we have a pretty good record, global record, of these dinosaur sites for much of this history. The very latest Cretaceous, the critical time, the time just preceding that impact is extremely poorly known. That is the time that marks the transition from the dinosaur beds in the Cretaceous to the beds that are eventually dominated by mammals and other vertebrates in the early tertiary. Essentially, that consists of just a cluster of localities in western North America on the edge of an interior seaway that crossed about here. So we have a very, very poor global-based knowledge about what happened to terrestrial ecosystems during the Cretaceous tertiary transition. And indeed, one of the mysteries is that in places like Japan and New Zealand, and uh, other places that the plants, the flora, the plant remains don't show these traumatic changes through this transition from the age of the dinosaurs, the Cretaceous, into the tertiary, the early age of the mammals. 
we don't see those transitions occurring. So it would be nice to get vertebrates in these other parts of the world. We now have a project in Argentina looking for this Cretaceous tertiary boundary, and we're getting some pretty good results, but we haven't really found that continuous section. And we've been looking desperately in Mongolia for such a transition, but there's no evidence of it so far. Very important limitation of the evidence, but a very important quest for paleontologists. There are also some interesting things that relate to the evolution of the mammals in the mammal group in an area that I've been working in. These yellow lines, these are the modern groups of mammals, horses, whales, carnivores, and so forth. And you see these branches. The thick blue lines represent what the fossil record indicates, how far these groups go back. But those yellow lines indicate the depths or the early times of splitting based on what people have reconstructed from gene change. Gene change that assumes a sort of very regular evolution of changes in genes through time. So what you see here is a very marked discrepancy between what the fossils suggest and the relatively young age of many of these modern groups and the depths of time going back to 130, 120 million years, the depths of time suggested for these divergence events based on the genes. So a story told by genes that's very different from what a direct reading of the fossils tells us. And even our more refined analysis, thinking about the relationships of these early groups to the more modern groups, and I won't go through all the, the logic of this, but our more refined analyses of the last couple of years still support a relatively young age for the more modern groups of mammals, still support the, the scenario that this extinction event probably gave an opportunity to the great radiations we see in the modern groups of mammals that survive today. So it's an interesting discrepancy between suggestions of genes and what the fossil record shows us, and one that we're now in, in a fairly vigorous debate. Who knows when and where the next great uh, fossil discovery will be found? Will it be found on Earth or on another planet? Um, these are all from reputable papers that have covered the election in the last couple of days. That's actually a, uh, that's actually a whale fossil, by the way. <laughs> but perhaps it's interesting, and we've had a lot of meetings with NASA recently, it's interesting to note that uh, given the fact, as Ed Wilson says, that 99.99% of life that ever existed on this planet is probably extinct, that if one were going to visit another planet that had at some time in its history some probability of preserving life, it'd be more likely if you f to find that in the fossil record than what is on that planet today. So paleontologists definitely need to be on some of those launches. Uh, in the meantime, the Gobi still exists. As I said, it's half a million square miles of beautiful terrain uh, where we might find another Uka Togad. We're desperately looking for one. This is the Flaming Cliffs. Andrews said someday there'll be a highway, superhighway going to this place. There hasn't been one yet. There's a little tourist camp there. It remains a place where you can still find a few really good fossils as we do this year. And the Gobi as a whole, even after 11 years, 
still, despite some longing to go to Hawaii, still seems like a vast, mysterious, beautiful, and incredibly uh, rewarding place to work. Thank you for letting me share this experience with you this evening. So now it's time for questions. Please uh, address your questions uh, to uh, Michael. And also we have uh, at least one microphone there and one microphone there, so it would be helpful if you use a microphone to ask your question. Hi. Uh, Could you please say more about uh, CAT scans and dinosaurs? Surely. Um, In... Many years, it's been when we really wanted to know about internal structure of dinosaur skulls or other skulls of other fossils, for instance, uh, features that might be on the internal side of the brain case, we've hoped to find fossils that actually preserve endocasts, that is, infillings of those brain cavities. It's almost like having the impression or a cast of the brain. And these are very useful but very rare. Another approach has been to simply... Uh, slice away with diamond blade saws or some kind of peeling technique, slice very thin sections and reconstruct the internal anatomy of the skull based on these reconstructions or on these work. Of course, you destroy the specimen, so there's a real liability there. CAT scan's been fantastic because we can basically do the same invasive surgery just as used in modern medicine on those skulls and then through three-dimensional computer animation reconstruct what we want, the features we want from those, those, those pieces. It's, it's too bad I don't have an animation because it's much easier to appreciate that when you see it. For instance, the matrix, the rocks surrounding the fossil could be very dark, but the bone itself might be a different color. And you might want to code it to reverse those images and reconstruct the, the vasculature, the vessels, or the nerves, or whatever you might be studying in these, in these animations or these, these sections. For the work, we have to have very high resolution, actually resolution that goes a bit beyond what generally people apply in, in medical sciences. And for that purpose, we use an industrial strength CAT scan down in Austin, Texas, with a center there that does that service for us now sort of a national center for, for CAT scanning fossil skulls run by Tim Rowe. It's a marvelous operation. This CAT scan is enough to kill a person, but it works great for fossils. There's a question back there. I'm wondering about the difference between the, uh, the ages predicted by molecular data and those predicted by fossils. Um, I'm wondering what you think might be the causes of that discrepancy and what are the, uh, the, the routes that one would take to resolve that discrepancy? Right. Uh, what are the causes of the discrepancy between the molecular reproduced divergence data and the fossil record? Well, one could look to, to be fair, one could look to the limitations on the evidence on both sides. The reconstructions for the fossil divergence data require an assumption that these molecules do 
uh, evolve at a fairly on a clock-like rate. So because the clock has to be, there has to be some signature for that clock, and those events have to be reconstructed. There are critics, including myself, of aspects of that model as a way to re reproduce molecular change. We don't think the evidence, especially for change within lineages, uh, the evidence is, is, is there. The other problem with the molecular reconstruction is they're not strictly independent from the fossil reconstructions. They require a couple of fossil dates for calibration. And thirdly, molecular clock reconstructions, though, have an interesting aspect to them. They can be very decisively falsified. That is, they can be very decisively refuted if you find a fossil belonging to that group that's actually older than the divergence date reconstructed. It's interesting when I, I have a paper in press now about the more recent proposals for these clock divergences in mammals. And although many of those dates are old, about seven or eight of those 20 dates are too young. They're basically, the fossil records, the fossils that represent those divergence dates are actually older than the reconstructions. So there's something weird, I guess, something strange about the reconstruction itself. On the other side, on, you know, in the criticism of the fossil evidence or looking at its limitations, as I showed in that map earlier, our notion of global scale change in many of these things is very poor. So it's quite possible that I readily admit that placental mammals are lurking about in Africa or parts of Asia, and we just haven't found them yet. I think that's less likely. I know I'm relying on a lot of negative evidence here, but I think that's far less likely in North America and Central Asia where the record is, is so good. But it's quite possible. We, we really know virtually nothing about Africa, for instance. Africa is the place to work. If only it had more fossils. It's a tremendous mystery to us in terms of our, our overall geographic view of what happened. There's a question there. Uh, what common characteristics define dinosaurs as a group? What, oh, what features define dinosaurs as a group? Not many, actually. They're very, as very often in, in phylogenetic studies, it's only a few subtle characters that define uh, a, a group. They may seem dramatic in terms of their, their later members. But, for example, one of, the, one of the key features for defining dinosaurs or diagnosing dinosaurs is this extra fossa in the hip socket opening in the hip, above the hip socket in the pelvic region. And the nearest relatives of dinosaurs in a group called the archosaurs, pterosaurs and other things, and crocodiles, don't have this feature. So the discrimination is very, very fine. It's just that later members of the lineages are dramatically different. But that's what evolution should do anyway. I mean, if evolution works, you're going to find fossils that clearly are transitional and show very subtle differences. What relationship, if any, is there between the um, dinosaur fossils that have been found and petroleum reserves? Petroleum. Re what relationship are there between the dinosaurs that have been found and petroleum reserves? Uh, not much, really, although because most petroleum reserves pertain to marine rocks, 
There have been some major strikes uh, of oil reserves in southern Mongolia and northern China, but they really are not related to the work that we're doing. You mentioned that uh, the dinosaur site was very arid. Uh, do you have uh, any evidence at all about vegetation and if any what? Pardon? I'm sorry, I didn't catch the end of that. You, you mentioned that the uh, dinosaur site which you, uh, in your expedition was very arid, very desert-like. Did you have any evidence at all about vegetation in that uh, area? Or, and if so, what? Uh, unfortunately, in these sand deposits, uh, evidence of vegetation is virtually nil. The only real evidence we have has to do with uh, reworking of sediments, burrows and root systems and so forth that suggest that some of these dunes were vegetated. The structure of the dune is broken down, for example, for example the cross bedding and so forth, once they become stabilized and the root systems get in there. But we do not in these very, this is like, I, I have to tell you, when you, you find a dinosaur there, it's absolutely delightful. I worked in my early years at dinosaur quarries in Colorado and Utah, where if you found something big, you didn't know whether to rejoice or cry, because you knew that if this was worth taking out, you would be spending the next two months digging it you know, out of solid rock, chopping it out of solid rock. You can remove one of these big dinosaurs in two or three days in this soft sand. It's just sand dune deposits and rather unconsolidated. So um, we don't find, and we desperately look for pollen too, and we don't find that kind of evidence. In some wet, sediments representing wetter habitats that are a bit younger in this section, there are some typical plant deposits, trees and and other things, but they're very typical of other dinosaur sites in the world. So we don't we don't have much evidence of vegetation. We think it's arid, primarily because of the sands and some of the mineral structures that preserved in the sands. The demise of the of these creatures creates fossils, but how, how do you explain the demise of the uh, two that you showed in combat, unless that uh, did create the demise and also uh, the creature preserving its eggs? Yeah, how, why why do we have these these animals and and sort of caught in the act in these? Uh, well. It's a marvelous thing. I can't, I can't give you an, an answer, a definitive answer on that. But we suggest that these events may have been catastrophic enough that these animals were caught in that situation and buried very rapidly. Uh, maybe these animals were actually, they look like they've done a lot of damage to each other. Maybe they were so injured they couldn't escape whatever was burying them, possibly, and they were still locked together in that pose. We don't know. We have some animation reconstructed a possible scenario. In terms of the nests, why are some of those animals still on their nests and why are the others not? Or, you know, why are many of the nests unoccupied? Don't know the answer to that. We know that there are certain living species, for instance, emperor penguins, the males will stay faithfully on a nest even in the face of a roaring uh, our, uh, Antarctic storm and per, and perish and 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 perish and still 
be found with those nest sites. But, you know, one could extrapolate or speculate about what actually happened. We don't know exactly why there is that variance. What is the connection between what you found in the Gobi Desert and, uh, say, in southern Argentina? Uh, the connection, you mean in terms of the kinds of animals or the situation? Yeah, the, the habitats are quite different. They're much wetter in southern Argentina. But one of the interesting things that's emerged is that uh, there are quite a few more relationships uh, between the Argentine and some of the other areas of the world, those dinosaurs and the Gobi forms. For instance, some of the weird uh, theropod-like forms a group called Mononychus, which are, I didn't show you pictures of. This is a flightless bird. Uh, there's some argument whether it's a, a dinosaur or a theropod that's not over the bird line or it's a bird that, that sort of went flightless and lost its capacity to fly. This was a totally bizarre animal when we first discovered it in the mid-'90s, but now there are good remains of this animal known from Argentina and other parts of the world, so we're finding these resemblances. Part of that, I think, comes from having, suddenly getting such good evidence that you can pinpoint the identity of more fragmentary evidence elsewhere. But there is a relationship. We're seeing some of these resemblances. On the whole, though, to get to another point, in the Cretaceous in Argentina and South America, the dinosaur faunas look quite a bit different. They're dominated by sauropods, and sauropods tend to dwindle or disappear in northern hemisphere faunas uh, to a greater extent anyway in the northern hemisphere faunas during that same time. So there are differences as well. What is your favorite dinosaur? What's my favorite? I don't, I don't have one. I don't know. <laughs> What's my favorite dinosaur? Well, let me see. Um, Barney, I think. Uh, I'm not going to show any favoritism. Somebody will get hurt. I noticed in the um, pictures, and you also mentioned there's lots of cross-bedding at this localities, these yeah. localities. And, uh, you know, in some of the bedding plains, you saw the tracks and stuff. I'm just wondering, most of the finds, were they within um, one, say, width or, you know, uh, of one cross bedder? Did you find a lot of your localities you know, crossed a numerous uh, cr uh, cross beds? You know, they I'm glad you asked that question because I obviously um, – I. I should have mentioned this in terms of clarification. What Dave pointed out was that we weren't finding any of the dinosaur fossils in the crossbeds. We just thought we were because the crossbeds were just the easiest thing to recognize in these sediments. But he would take us, we'd look very precisely at the locality. He said, see, there are no crossbeds here. These dunes have stabilized. So the only thing you find in the crossbeds are those trackways because they're on the surface of those surfaces of those migrating dunes. So they, the, the, the bones are not in the migrating dune fields. They're in the more stabilized areas. That's what I guess what I was asking, kind of leading up by asking the question, because I think the cross-bedding is more of a dynamic right. situation that might destroy those perfect, you know, exactly. sensitive remains there like that. Exactly. So. We just weren't sand-sensitive enough to make that distinction. I think we have one more question at the back. Oops. 
right at the back. Uh, the question was, were they mostly um, meat eaters, the dinosaurs, fossils that you found? It's a very good question, too. This place is strange because we have so many meat eaters. Uh, the meat eaters represent, are represented by about, um, about 70% of the dinosaurs found at this site. And generally in dinosaur sites, as you might expect, the herbivores far outnumber the, the meat eaters. That may just have something to do with another aspect of the biology of that community that this might, as the Flaming Cliffs, these might have been major nesting sites. Um, actually, the Flaming Cliffs is quite the opposite. The oviraptors are quite rare and the herbivores, the protos, are very common. But at this site, we get a very, very large number of meat eaters, which is unexpected because most communities, of course, don't have that kind of abundance, relative abundance. Okay, I think I'd like to ask the last question, so don't leave. Oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, unless I missed you, um, I don't think you mentioned birds. And, oh, really? uh, and if, if that's true, my question is, uh, were the birds there in the vicinity um, and simply flew away when the disasters hit, or do you think they were not there? And if they were not there, I wonder why. There are birds at that site. Um, I didn't mention them, but we do, and I should have, we do have, they're not as common as, as the lizards, the mammals, and the dinosaurs, but there are some very nice uh, groups of birds. These are the very primitive forms that branched off before the modern radiation of many of the bird groups. Most of them are flightless birds, um, and, um, but there, there, are, there are birds there. Okay, well, um, I think we've had an absolutely fascinating evening, an excursion into the past, and I, th I would like you to join me in uh, showing your appreciation in the standard way that we do for excellent speakers. Surprise to you, I don't suppose. <laughs> it's not on this subject. Okay. Okay.